1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Peter Swanson on his latest novel, Rules for Perfect Murders. Peter Swanson's novels include The Girl with a Clock for a Heart nominated for an LA Times Book Award, The Kind Worth Killing, a Richard and Judy pick, and the Store's Thriller of the Year in 2015, and most recently Before She Knew Him. His new book, Rules for Perfect Murders, which we're going to be talking about today, has been optioned for film by New Regency, with Ryan Reynolds attached to produce and star in it. Peter, welcome back to Little Atoms.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Um, So tell us first of all how you would describe this new novel.
0: How would I describe it? So it's narrated by Malcolm Kershaw, who is a sort of introverted um, bookseller and previously a book blogger. Um, and a few years earlier, he's, he's made a list of—he's um, a crime fiction fanatic, so he's made a list of his eight favorite murders in crime fiction history, the kind of perfect murders— um, and he's forgotten about this list, it's been a few years ago, and an FBI agent comes and knocks on his door one snowy morning in February in Boston and um, informs him that she believes that someone is using that specific list to actually kill real people throughout New England. And that, that's just sort of the first chapter, so that's the, the premise of the book. Um, but then as we move along, we sort of get to know the secretive past history of um of malcolm's particular story
1: and as you said the book is set in it's present-day new england yeah. as are all your your novels and indeed uh, roberta james makes an appearance at, at one <laughs> she point does. yes and yes. i'm sure i seem to remember you saying <laughs> that was supposed to be a trilogy before yeah um and more specifically one of the real places i wanted to talk about um which you mentioned in the acknowledgements is a place called annie's book swap yeah which um features very briefly is mentioned by malcolm as an important place in his past. So I guess that must mean it was an important place in your past too.
0: Yeah, so Annie's Book Swap, as far as I know, was a, um, a franchise opportunity that really boomed in the sort of 80s and 90s, um, where I think what they would do is, you know, you would, you would say you wanted to do a used book business, and they would send you the sign, and they would send you the shelving or something. I mean, it was sort of a franchise in that sense. So there were many of them, Annie's Book Swaps, even though they each had a separate owner and basically what they sold were cheap what we call mass market paperbacks you know just for like a dollar each and there was one quite close to me where i lived in fact cycling distance and um you know i think at a certain age and i you know it's hard to pinpoint at this point exactly when it was but i'm guessing around 12 13 or something i just started going down there and pulling out basically all the books that looked good and to me a, a good looking book was something that looked you know suspenseful and um, quite adult and has a lurid cover type of thing um, so yeah, so I picked up, you know, Agatha Christie's there but I also picked up all these sort of mid-century um, American thrillers like um, John D. MacDonald Ed McBain Alistair MacLean, I picked up I mean, I picked up all sorts of stuff Spencer Books by Robert Parker, which who was local um, yeah, and that's and that sort of began my sort of voracious phase of, of reading
1: and then um, Old Devils which is the, the bookstore that malcolm part owns in the yeah. story is that does that have any sort of real antecedents
0: it doesn't except for the fact that what's well, funny boston actually is is currently a city without a mystery bookshop um, and this is a fairly recent development because for years we had kate's mystery bookstore which was actually quite famous it was in cambridge and kate was around kate mattis was around forever and had this great collection of used books and new books, and the store was this sort of glorious mess. She was very good at She loved to talk about books, and she'd read everything, but she wasn't organized. In fact, actually, Robert Parker, um, when he was alive, actually built the shelves in the the store because he was a good carpenter. But anyway, Kate went out of business about four or five years ago, and since then there hasn't been a mystery bookstore. And I briefly had a fantasy about opening one myself and actually talked to someone in the book business who said, well, you know, maybe you could do the money and I can do the... I could do the day-to-day operations. And we briefly flirted with it and it didn't happen. And this is what Um, happens in the story. But this is what happens in the story. (laughs) So it's sort of a fantasy of mine that... uh, Although, um, that this thing might happen. Because it is a shame that Boston doesn't have a a bookstore devoted to mystery um, novels. Most other big cities in um, the States have one, I think.
1: This must be a rents thing in Cambridge, then, is it?
0: Oh, God, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, um, a lot of the small indie stores are going out of business in Cambridge and I think actually Kate's would have been saved um I think people would have run in she was really quite beloved and I think people would have run in and saved it except for the fact that I think she was tired of doing it and just the sheer volume of books and she kind of wanted to to call it quits and I regret to this day that I didn't swoop in and buy her stock because she had offered it up but I, I don't you know Maybe I don't regret it, because it would be sitting in a storage unit right now. And, um, but, but it was a great stock, and I, I don't, who knows where it is.
1: Malcolm Kershaw, then, let's talk a bit more about him. So his wife, his, I was going to say his ex-wife, but he's a widow. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, his dead wife, Claire, features heavily in the story eventually, and obviously we don't want to give too much away about where the story goes, but tell us some more about Malcolm's background, if you can.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, I said he's sort of an introvert, but he's had this one great love in his life, this sort of fiery romance, or at least from his end, with Claire Mallory, who, who he married. Um, and then sort of four years or so prior to the story, has died um, in a car accident. And what I think is interesting about Malcolm, what I was kind of trying to get across with him, is the type of narrator he is. He tells you, um, he tells you the, bare, the bare bones of his story, in other words, he doesn't tell you the emotional side of the story. You can, it's kind of like an iceberg. You see a tip of him telling you a story, and what he doesn't tell you is a, sort of a lot of the stuff roiling on underneath. So actually, despite the fact that I think he seems quite calm and clear-headed, and he's someone, I think, who, after suffering this tragedy, just wants to get through the day and cause as little ruffles as possible. So he runs this bookstore. He doesn't have a lot of friends. Um, he sort of goes about his business eating his sort of simple dinner at night. But the more we we learn about him, the more we realise how shook up he was by certain events in his life and how much he's hiding.
1: Well, indeed, yeah, what, what he's hiding, because Malcolm is... This book is partly based around these eight perfect murders in these crime novels, and we're going to talk about those a little later on, but there is another very famous crime novel by Agatha Christie that I won't mention the title of, but that Malcolm does a number of times... Malcolm is the very definition of an unreliable narrator as
0: well, isn't he? Yeah, he is, absolutely, and I think um, he hints at that early on. And, that, you know, it's a, it's a fun motif to play with as a writer. So, I mean, some of it, it's how he reveals his information and in the way the story is told that makes him, that makes him quite unreliable. Although, in a, in a weird way, I think he believes he is a truthful narrator um, because eventually it all gets spelled out.
1: I wanted to talk also about Gwen Mulvey, who's the the FBI agent that first alerts Malcolm. Malcolm is the narrator of the story, and it's his story. Um, She's the person that first alerts him to this list and to what's going on, and and actually, for various reasons, sort of drops out of the story as it goes on. She's great, and she's a character I would really like to see again.
0: Oh, that's good to know. (laughs) Yeah, I would... um... Yeah, I'd be interested in that. I mean, I think she, she does drop out of the story a bit. And it's funny. I mean, this story could have been told from her point of view, of course. She's, uh, in fact, traditionally might have been, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, you can sort of see it. Like, she's an FBI agent. There's been a string of homicides across New England that seem to not be connected, yet all have a sort of Baroque quality to them. And she recognizes one of the murders as possibly being related to Agatha Christie's ABC murders, um, she recognizes another one that might be related to Double Indemnity. She somehow puts those books together and comes up with this list. So you could certainly see the story through her eyes, and then Malcolm would be the sort of slightly jittery, slightly suspicious-looking um, list writer. But of course, we get, but we don't get the story from her. We get it from Malcolm. Maybe who knows? Maybe she'll uh, reappear.
1: Let me get into the second half as I said, I want to go through some, if not all eight, of those novels that you've chosen and talk about what's interesting about each one. Um, Before we do that, I guess what I wanted to ask was, you know, in putting this, how did you come by this list? How did you whittle it down? And what are some others that might not have made it? But to frame that, actually, I want to say, how would your list have been different to Malcolm's?
0: Yeah. I mean, I was, it's actually very similar to Malcolm's in the sense that Malcolm, despite not, being like me actually has my reading history and my reading preferences. It's not always the case with my books. I think at one point I, I thought I was going to distinguish a little between Malcolm's taste and mine, and then I thought just, you know, why do that? Why not, why not just make him essentially autobiographical in that sense as a reader, at me as a reader and Malcolm as a reader? So, so certainly the eight books that he picks are all books that I love and all books that I think have a particularly clever murder for the purposes of the book i needed them to have a murder that was sort of replicable by the killer so there were other reasons to pick them and i did i did at varying points have i had a longer list at one point i had a different list at other points and i had certain things like abc murders is maybe not my most my favorite um agatha christie but it's one that made sense you know basically hiding a homicide within a What looks like a serial killer, which is kind of the theme of that book, seem like something that someone could replicate. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing.
1: to Little Atoms I'm Neil Denny today I'm talking to Peter Swanson we're talking about his latest novel Rules for Perfect Murders and Peter as I said I want to go into the list of sure of the eight novels yeah just scanning it again I have definitely I've only read one of these okay and then um, perhaps that'll come up as we get further down the list,
0: I feel a little bad because, of course, I spoiled a bunch of them for you. But I, I mean, and you were so you were required to read the book because you know you're doing this podcast. I mean, my argument for the people I think who, um, so let's say, like um, there is an Agatha Christie book that's slightly spoiled, and I, I think my argument would be, you know, if you're reading, if you're a crime fiction fan and you're reading my book and you haven't yet read this particular Agatha Christie book then maybe your priorities should be a little straightened out. And um, so, yeah, don't, I mean, there are some spoilers for these books. There kind of had to be. There had to be for mm-hmm. the purposes of this story.
1: And most of them are, are old. And in fact, let's talk about the ABC murders first of all, because there was very recently a really good television adaptation yeah. of it in the UK. I don't right. think it got over to the US. So people may be more familiar with this one than, than you might think. Um, yeah, this, why this one?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in all honesty, a number of these books were books that I sort of thought were very clever for a very long time. And I've always been a little mesmerized by this particular murder plot, which is, and again, I, these are some sort of slight spoilers They don't that I'll be discussing. It doesn't necessarily give away the end of the book or, or what happens, but it gives away maybe the middle, which is um, what they kind of discover is that there's a series of murders happening that... Um, that seem to be um, related by letters. So it's like Anthony Adams in Andover dies, and then Beatrice Bernadetti from Brighton dies. Um, So it looks like this sort of mad serial killer is killing off people based on, um, at the time, the the postal book. He's going through the post book and and finding these people to kill randomly. So it, it looks like a random serial killer, when in fact it's disguising a singular victim. Um, I always thought that was brilliant. I also think it 's just sort of horrific in the sense that like you want you want to kill one person, and the best way to do it is just kill a bunch of other people in the same way and make it look like a serial killer i mean it's It seems very clever and it seems like the type of idea that would actually work and mm-hmm. you could get away with so again it 's that type of thing i was I was thinking about something doable as opposed to i mean maybe my favorite christie novel is and then there were none, which has ten victims on an island, and that you know I wasn't going to have the killer in this actually try and contrive to get 10, 10 people onto an island and kill them all.
1: Um, what we didn't say before we dived into the, the first one is let's talk about the very concept of the perfect murder. Yeah. Um, you know, George Orwell famously had you know, wrote an essay about you know, the perfect English murder... Um, but we're talking about something different here, I think. So how do, how do you define... Well, what's funny is... Well, how does Malcolm define it? I yeah.
0: What I mean, what's funny about it is um, none of these actually are perfect murders because, you know, in the fictional worlds, they, they all get found out, mm-hmm. of course, by the Poirot or the um, Sherlock Holmes or, or what have you. Um, and in fact, there are very few for that reason because we read detective novels we're, we're, we're really reading about people attempting the perfect murder and being foiled by a um, detective figure that's smarter than they are. So Of course um, we
1: wouldn't know about it. And of course in then. real
0: life right. If they, I mean I'm sure there's been all sorts of perfect murders done in real life and I think um, that are hidden you know that we'll never know about because they're perfect. So, so that's the sort of funny thing is that ultimately I think out of all these eight books they're all essentially imperfect murders in the sense that the um, someone figures them out
1: and um, some of these books are also significant in being first or you know significant steps on the on the sort of development of the genre you know the crime novel as well. The Red House Mystery, which is by A. a. Milne. I had no idea if yeah. did anything other than Winnie the Pooh. Um, but this is a um, an early locked room mystery. Yeah.
0: And it, what's interesting about A.A. Milne is, of course, Winnie the Pooh, but he wrote one murder mystery, and it was The Red House Mystery. And it's kind of a classic. In fact, actually, I was just in Waterstones today, and I saw it on the in a display area. It was a sort of a reissue, a classic reissue. And then he never wrote another one. And in fact, when you read it, it seems like he's kind of setting up for... Um, you know these two sort of amateur sleuths that are kind of in the PG Woodhouse mode. They're quite um, frothy, light English um, young men characters that solve the crime. I always thought, having read this book years ago, I thought there was a really quite clever um, concealment in in that one, in the sense that what happens is someone's killed and someone else disappears. And it's if that happens, you automatically think that um, the person who's the person who's disappeared is the person who's done the killing and has taken off and um, if that wasn't the case if you could sort of conceal a murder within that but yeah it's an interesting book it's actually it's actually a lot of fun and it's got all it's got all sorts of sort of ridiculous um, locked room devices um, including I think a uh, priest hole and uh, you know hidden passages and all this sort of um, fun stuff but you know they should actually I wonder if there's ever been... I don't think there's been a film version. There probably was one in the 30s or something, but they should... Um, I mean, they tried out these Agatha Christie's, which are great. I love watching them, but there's other you know, stuff they could do. They, sh- they should do this one. So, It's my pitch for, for... I'll do it if it, anyone wants to ask me.
1: Um, I want to talk about Double Indemnity. You know, I've read some other James M. Cain, but I've never actually read the book of this, even though I'm really pleased you included it, because it's, it's one of my absolute top five favourite films. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing film.
0: I mean again, I, this is a book I love. Um, I, I'd say it's my favorite cane. I, I also like "The Postman Always Rings twice." and I, do, and I love this film as well. What's different that, so the film, if you've only seen the film, um, the murder is quite similar, and it's, it's made to look like um, the, the murdered husband, so it's a, an illicit affair, and they're, they need to, they want to murder their husband. It's you know the story oldest time there. He's made to look like he's fallen off the back of a train and broken his neck. So they do this sort of clever subterfuge where one of them pretends to be him on the on the train, and goes to the back of the train so there'll be witnesses that that this man was on the train. Um, it's actually quite—I mean, it's quite—I mean, it's a perfect murder in the sense of if it works, it's a perfect murder. It could go wrong in just so many ways, but um, and it—you it, know—it does naturally. But yeah, I always love that book. And the difference, if you haven't, um, you know, read the book yet. The book's quite plot-wise the same, um, but the book is quite... What's the word? It's quite savage, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, it's going to be lurid. Certainly. It's More really, it's really lurid. Is. And it's, it's quite... Uh, yeah, and the, the ending of it is really quite shocking. Um, as what, I mean, Cain... That was sort of Cain's trademark. Um, these sort of sickening sexual relationships that led toward murder. So. Yeah, like There the, was the limits to what... his wings twice. So. Yeah, and the same yeah, thing yeah. in that book. And that, I mean... You know stuff that they couldn't quite get in the um, film versions of the forties. Yeah. It's
1: just all done by that shot of that ankle bracelet as she walks down I know. the stairs. it's yeah. such oh, a okay. fun movie. It's such a <laughs> terrific movie. Yeah, um, "Strangers on the Train" as well. You've, you've included by Patricia Highsmith, and in in this case as well, I've only ever seen the, the, the Hitchcock movie. Great film, but again, I understand that the book is is quite different.
0: Uh, same thing, similar to the Cane It's quite mm. it's quite queasy and lurid. Cause it's all about guilt. It's about um, even though there, there's this proposed murder swap that, you know, I'll do your murder and you do mine, and if we're make sure we're out of the country or whatever while while it's being done, they won't be able to pin it on us. Of course, you got to find two people who want to do a murder, mm-hmm. and then and again, I think as a perfect murders go, it's if everything went correct, it's it's smart, but it, you know. In some ways, it's incredibly dumb because you've given you've handed over yeah. this information to someone
1: else. Yeah, it's, it's the sort of perfect and also the stupidest stupidest way of murder.
0: Yeah, way. a really dumb one. <laughs> yeah, all, all this stuff is in, in a way sort of referenced in the book as well, but it, but it is a quite famous one, um, and of course because of the, the Hitchcock movie as well. But yeah, the book the book itself is it's terrific, but uh, yeah, quite different different feel.
1: And I wanted to say something about the Drowner. This is a John D. MacDonald yeah. novel. I've read some of the Travis McGee novels because I happen to have a friend oh, yeah. who's named after Travis McGee, and and they're great. Um, this just sounds insane. <laughs> yeah, this
0: one is quite insane. He so John D. MacDonald, and I'm not sure he was that popular in the in the UK, or maybe he was. And in fact, in the in the States right now, he's um, I'd say he's sort of out of fashion and, and kind of quite forgotten. But in mid century America, I'd say that like just about every suburban dad had like the Travis McGee novels on their shelves which was his detective series, kind of a detective series. But he wrote about 50 standalones as well. And they range in quality, but the ones that are good are, are very good. And the drowner is um, not one of his best books, but one, it has this sort of brilliant setup where there's um, this person finds a way to make it look like someone's drowned by sort of dragging them down beneath the surface from below. It's kind of creepy because if you think about it, it's sort of like a shark attack, but it's a human. And scuba gear Um, and this sort of and this sort of swampy swampy pond in Florida which no one would swim in anyway but anyway it does sound kind of ridiculous when you spell it out but um, it's a book I read quite young as as had Malcolm in fact I I will eventually read a section that has a little bit to do with this but um, that that affected me as as a youth because if someone's found dead and you know drowning is a quite clever way to kill someone I think if you can, you know, how, how can you prove that it wasn't just a simple drowning that they ran, you know, unless they've been bashed on the head or something. So, um, yeah, I just, I knew I had to get a John D. MacDonald in there because he is, he's kind of my, I, I do, I do love his books and I am a completist. I've read them all and, um, and I've been reading them since I was quite young.
1: There's a, there's a couple of other novels which I'm, I'm not going to go into in great detail that also do what happens in The Drowner, which is, you know, contriving some sort of accidental yeah. death as as a murder. Um, but the last one I wanted to talk about was The Secret History by Donna Tartt, um, which is the one I've read. Yeah, and I guess I want to talk about this because, as Malcolm mentions in the book, and it's, it, I thought this was a great, you know, really realistic touch for someone who was a blogger, in that he says. Had to put a contemporary novel do you know, in, yeah, a blog, yeah, yeah. in a list. You know, you're writing this yeah, yeah. list of things for BuzzFeed or whatever, and you've got to put something that, like, right. people are going to identify with. And he chooses um, The Secret History. And I wanted to talk about in doing that in reality, in, in choosing that one as the contemporary novel to put into this list. How hard was that to come up with? Because you know
0: it was a little bit hard. I was actually trying to think of um, recent books that had like a like a more well known recent book. Because I did I did think about composing that list as Malcolm would have thought about composing the list. In fact, in the book, he it's his first book post, and he he quite takes it quite seriously. And you do want a range. I mean, you you want some a couple Golden Age, you want a couple mid centuries, probably a couple contemporaries. I really only have the one. But I think I thought of a lot of my favorite contemporary thrillers, and none of them had what the element of a, of a perfect murder. And then I remembered um, *Secret History*, that when the students in the in the book decide to kill off their fellow student, this is not a spoiler because in fact it's in the first sentence of the book that they had killed Bunny. Um, there's a bit where they think about what would make it look natural, and they. And Bunny goes on these long walks in the woods, and they sort of wait for him in a spot, but they don't know if he's going to turn up or not. So in a way, they don't contrive; they don't. There's no advance of "let meet us there," and he tells someone he just randomly runs into them, and that is the place of his death. And if he hadn't randomly, in a way, he picked his own death. Yeah, that's how they
1: contrive it. They that's how it, that he's chosen his own place. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, but um, but so I did remember that, and then I and I and I've always loved this book, and so that became. Um, my sort of contemporary pick for the list
1: I also liked how Malcolm as well he has actually it turns out many emotional reasons for for not wanting to read too much crime fiction anymore Yeah, Um, but he does make a point of saying you know as this person who runs a bookshop he has to regularly recommend crime fiction to his customers but he hasn't read them yeah he knows enough to say he stopped he stopped
0: writing crime fiction for the that's one of the early things you find out about him (laughs) is he stopped right reading crime fiction for several years yeah but
1: he knows enough to be able to you know say a couple of sentences from the press release or whatever right and um and I wondered now as you know as somebody who is you know very firmly a crime fiction writer multiple novels to what extent you're still engaged with contemporary crime fiction
0: I'm sort of more, yeah, I mean, I'm more engaged with contemporary crime fiction than I ever have been in the sense that, for one thing, I mean, crime fiction writers are now my colleagues and I meet them in places and I want to read their books. Um, sometimes I'm on a panel with them and it's it's nice to be able to have read one of their books and, and know that. There's blurbing, of course. Um, but yeah, just knowing what's happening out there in the crime fiction world. But it goes against me. I mean, I left to my own devices, I, I oddly am only drawn toward the old books I don't know what it is I mean I also I also f- have this feeling like if something comes out this year and it's all it's the buzzed about book well if I wait 20 years um and people are still talking about it then it, then I'll know <laughs> that uh, that it made it and I'll read it then I mean I'll read it when it becomes the true classic as opposed to the instant classic because there's no such thing and um yeah so I don't know I'm just drawn toward um older books I love I like um I like the feel of read, reading something written a while ago. I mean, occasionally a book comes along and I just feel like, oh, I, gotta, I need to read that one because it, it's appealing to me. But yeah, so I do, I read across the spectrum. But
1: To finish off then, can I get you to, to read us a bit?
0: Yeah, so um, I don't really need to set it up much because we've kind of set it up nicely. And in fact, some of the things we've talked about are going to be in this section. But um, one of the things that Malcolm does after being approached by Gwen the FBI agent to um, find out if he knows anyone who might have committed these crimes or, or has any information. He also delves back into the books on the list, um, trying to sort of think more about them and what, you know, clearly the killers read these books as well, so he wants to kind of get into his head. So this is a section of him at home talking about really the act of reading. I was beginning to fall asleep on the sofa, so I got up, rinsed out the beer bottles, threw away the remainder of my sandwich. "'brushed my teeth, and changed into my pajamas. "'Then I went to my bookshelf "'and found the book I was looking for, The Drowner. "'I had the original gold medal paperback, "'printed in 1963. "'It had one of those lurid, illustrated covers "'that adorn pretty much all of John D. MacDonald's "'mid-century paperbacks. "'On this one, a dark-haired woman in a white bikini "'is being pulled down through the murky-green depths "'by a pair of hands gripping one of her pretty legs. "'It promised, like all these covers, two things, sex and death. I ran my thumb along the edge of the book, riffling the pages, and that musty, prickly smell of an old paperback reached my nostrils. I've always loved that smell, even though the book collector side of me knows that it was a sign of a book that has been improperly maintained over the years, a book that had probably sat in a cardboard box on the floor of a damp cellar for too many seasons. I brought the drowner into bed with me. I read the first paragraph, its words hauntingly familiar. Books are time travel. True readers all know this. But books don't just take you back to the time in which they were written, they can take you back to different versions of yourself. The last time I'd cracked this particular paperback I was probably 11 or 12. I like to think it was summertime and I was up late in my cramped bedroom under a single sheet, a mosquito probably whining in one of the corners of the room. My father was playing his records in the living room too loudly, depending on how drunk he was. Most nights ended the same, with my mother turning down his music, jazz usually, although sometimes he'd listen to fusion stuff like Frank Zappa or Weather Report, and my father berating her for not understanding him. But this was simply background noise, because I wasn't really there in that bedroom. I was actually in Florida in 1963, hanging out with shady real estate developers and sexy divorcees and drinking bourbon highballs. And now here I was again, almost 40 years old, And my eyes were running over the same words holding the same book I held 28 years ago, the same book some businessman or housewife held 50 years ago, time travel.
1: So I've been talking to Peter Swanson, we've been talking about his latest novel, Rules for Perfect Murders, which is out now in the UK from Faber. Peter, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks for having me.